0: We can only represent a small minority of those um, going to family court. So we represent survivors in those cases in a holistic way. And for all the many litigants that we cannot represent due to lack of resources, we try and give as much self-represented litigation assistance as we possibly can to those folks.
1: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, I'm Molly McDonough, and I've spent my career as a legal affairs journalist and communications professional. I have a special interest in exploring how our systems can more effectively meet the legal needs of underserved populations. And I especially enjoy speaking with leaders and innovators in this field. Today, in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I'm speaking with two guests who are working to provide legal services for individuals facing intimate partner violence. Emily Riley is a senior staff attorney with Land of Lincoln Legal Aid, where she has served as the Victim of Crime Act coordinator across the organization's five regional offices. And Susan Perlstein is a senior attorney and violence prevention and policy strategist in the Family Law Unit of Philadelphia Legal Assistance. Emily and Susan, welcome to Talk Justice. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Before we dive into our discussion today, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the work you do in Illinois and Pennsylvania. Susan, do you want to start us off?
0: Sure. Sure. So I'm at Philadelphia Legal Assistance. We're the LSC-funded organization for Philadelphia City and County, which is a very large, very poor city. We have a really high population of folks living under the poverty level, especially in deep poverty. So unfortunately, there are many, many litigants that are eligible for our services. We... Try and represent as many survivors of family violence that we can. We can only represent a small minority of those going to family court. And in my office, when I say family court, um, we are doing domestic relations work, not dependency work. And so that is, that is cases where it's private parties, mom, dad, grandma, whoever else might be involved with the child for Child custody cases, child support and spousal support, divorce, and a lot of protection from abuse cases, which are often also called restraining orders, domestic violence cases. So, we represent survivors in those cases in a holistic way as best as we can. And for all the many litigants that we cannot represent due to lack of resources in our organization and throughout the city, we try and give as much self-represented litigation assistance as we possibly can to those folks.
2: All right, thank you. Em- Emily? Hi, I'm Emily Riley. I have been in a practicing attorney at Land of Lincoln um, for over seven years. I'm in a, the victim of crime act coordinator for about three. I've worked in three, so we have five offices across the central and southern region and we, region, excuse me, and we serve about 65 counties. Um, and a lot of them are rural populations. So it is a lot of traveling. But essentially what my role is, is I do a lot of what Susan does, right? So I am an attorney that represents people in family and custody disputes as well as protective orders. So that could be orders of protection involving parties that are related in some sort of way, and either in a domestic partnership, familial relationship, um, roommate cohabitation arrangement. Additionally, I represent, we also help with stalking no-contact orders, which is um, uh, restraining orders between kind of strangers, neighbors, um, et cetera. Um, And we also help with civil no-contact orders, which are sexual assault cases. Um, where there isn't necessarily that domestic relationship. But we also help with um, some guardianships, as well as custody and divorce cases. And so that's kind of what I've been doing now for a very long time. So yeah, we serve 65 counties. My county specifically serves about 12. Um, So it's a lot of traveling. But yeah, it's nice to
1: help those that are underserved um, in rural communities, as well as some other bigger cities. So basically what I'm hearing from both of you is there's a lot of different ways that uh, legal services comes into play with family situations and uh, that brings me to my first question which is when i was prepping for this i found this university of arizona study and they were kind of looking at specific areas in the state and digging deeper into needs doing needs assessments and safe housing not surprisingly was number one and legal support as the greatest needs and it just made me wonder if you could talk a little bit about the specific legal needs that come up, especially those that maybe others wouldn't think of, that come into play when there's family violence in the picture.
2: One of the bigger things is is, is housing, and a lot of times domestic violence are interrelated, right? Um, a lot of times there's some uh, financial dependence issues where an abuser has made their Victim financially depended on them, right? So they don't have their name on the lease of their rental, um, not on the deed to the home. Maybe they persuaded the victim in this instance to not work, so they don't have an, their own financial source of income or take any income that they do earn into a joint account or a sole account that they have control over. So housing is a big issue. A financial interdependence is a big issue. Getting people on public benefits as quickly as possible when you get into a case is certainly something um, that we have caseworkers to assist us on. So getting people to apply to SNAP or TANF, things like that to help them get some source of income to help them become financially independent. Additionally, which is interesting about Illinois is we have what's called the Illinois Safe Homes Act, which is a statute that basically um, tells private landlord tenants are gives an affirmative defense so to speak to private landlords um, that if someone comes to you indicating that they want to break their lease early because of domestic violence they have to give you three days notice and then after that they are no longer liable for any accumulated rent past that three-day notice so that also helps people get out of leases um, and not be you know financially burdened after trying to leave an abusive relationship but that's certainly something that's in the forefront of everybody's mind is you know, retaining their residence. Maybe that's where they have enough bedrooms for their kids, right? Their placement for their children is a main concern for them and things
1: like that. So that's something that we certainly look at and we have to triage pretty early on. I'm going to have a follow-up to that, but Susan, go ahead.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to echo a lot of what Emily just said. Housing is often one of the biggest barriers to survivors uh, leaving, and leaving an abusive situation is often a really dangerous time, right? So the most dangerous time in a domestic violence relationship, one of the most dangerous times is when you're leaving. Another is when the survivor is pregnant or right after having a child. So we've had many, and when I said earlier, we try and provide holistic representation, we'll do all of the family law stuff child support, protection from abuse, divorce, custody. And then we work with a lot of our partners in the legal services community to make sure that all the other things are taken care of because the survivor is not gonna be able to leave if she doesn't have a place to live, if she doesn't have an income, if she doesn't have custody of her kids, if her immigration status can't be dealt with and threats of deportation are often used against immigrant survivors of domestic violence. Like Emily said, a lot of survivors are not permitted to work or have to turn over their income or they're not allowed to learn how to speak English. So things like that. Philadelphia, actually, Pennsylvania does not have a similar protection for survivors in their leases. But Philadelphia has an ordinance that basically provides kind of the same protections for survivors. You can break a lease without penalty. You can't be evicted for the police being called because of domestic violence, things like that. But housing is really difficult. And a lot of times what happens is survivors will go and try and file for a protection from abuse petition and get a temporary order. The temporary order in Pennsylvania, then you have 10 days before you get a hearing, before a judge. The temporary order can provide for eviction of the abuser in certain circumstances. And so you go to court, you file your petition, you see a judge for a quick ex parte hearing, and that judge that day can enter an order giving you custody of your kids, evicting the abuser from the home, ordering relinquishment of weapons, things like that. If the order does, grant eviction for the abuser, then great. The police or sheriffs can assist with effectuating that temporary order, making service, getting the abuser out of the home. If it doesn't, a lot of survivors are then completely afraid to even serve the petition because then if they don't have their own place to go, what are they going to do? Go home and like have this order served saying, I have a protection from abuse order against you. It says you can't abuse me, but now we have to live together until next week when our hearing is, or she doesn't have any temporary order at all. And she's going to have to wait. And I'm saying she, of course, abuse happens across gender, across race, across socioeconomic. It can be two men. It can be two women. I just say she and he, because it's easier. And that is the majority of cases, So that makes it really difficult for people when they don't have housing and they can't leave safely. Yeah, we have um, exclusive possession is an extremely helpful tool in
2: protective orders um, that can be be granted ex parte. And And I also picked up on something else. You indicated that Philadelphia has it that you can't evict someone based on calling the police. Is that correct, Susan?
0: Yeah, right. So the ordinance says that a landlord can't evict tenants just because the police have been called because of domestic violence.
2: And I wanted to echo that because we have sometimes around our area, sometimes in the even, because we're close to St. Louis, Missouri, so sometimes in the St. Louis County as well, they have crime-free ordinances. So that allows a private landlord to evict someone for calling the police, right? And having the police just show up at their house and calling for help. And so that also is a detriment. Those crime-free ordinances, while I guess, you know, they can be seen as like, hey, we we don't want these unsavory people in our neighborhood, but essentially they're working against domestic violence survivors and this so that's it's a real problem. So I did want to point that out, Susan. I'm appreciative that you kind of brought
1: that up. Yeah, that seems to be kind of I remember covering it at the ABA journal too. It's a it's a big issue. You it seems like, oh, it's a tough on crime. Mm-hmm. What it ends up being is tough on survivors and their families and prevents them from getting out of situations. And finding good housing, too. It penalizes survivors when they try to find other housing. That was interesting to me. Emily, I didn't know that Illinois had that. You could get out of your lease provision, and it sounds like Philadelphia has that, too. That's that's fantastic. And that helps preserve their credit ratings. There doesn't ding them to go somewhere else. Susan, I was going to ask... Uh, I have two questions following up on some of the things you both said. One is... We were talking about, it just seems like it's, this is almost an overwhelming process for someone. With your approach to this holistic approach, and Emily, I understand this is similar to what you do too and others do. It seems like there are a lot of moving parts with partners. You know, kind of how do you organize that and kind of toggle between direct service and DIY, you know, information on websites and, and tutorials? Um, And then part two of that is, you know, kind of, are you finding ways to streamline that process and make it easier or more manageable?
0: Yeah, it is a lot for a survivor, especially. So (laughs) I'm involved in a group called the Domestic Violence Law Enforcement Task Force, and it's been going on for like I don't know, 15 years or so, and we have all these community partners. When we first started, we tried to map out all the things that a survivor would have to do if there were just going through the family law cases. It's so much, and you might have, you know, several appearances for a protection order, several appearance for custody, several appearance for support. Then on top of that, maybe you're trying to get public benefits, so you have to go to the welfare office and do all of those things. And if you're undocumented or an immigrant, maybe you need to meet with an immigration attorney. So, And then if dependency is involved, if Child Protective Services is investigating, you might have to do things for them and then go to parenting classes or whatever. It can be really overwhelming. We've all had clients who basically touch every unit of our civil legal aid services between Philadelphia Legal Assistance and community legal services that they might need help with utilities all kinds of things. So we do have a social worker, which has sort of been like life-changing for us, but she's only one person. So through one of our grants, through a Justice for Families grant, we were, or no, a Victims of Crime Act grant, we were able to get a social worker a couple years ago. And that really helps with trying to like figure out what are all the things that this client needs, sending them or, you know, connecting them with all the different resources Some of our grants, we specifically work with some immigration organizations in Philadelphia. So we will do the family law piece and they'll do the immigration piece. And that's really, really helpful as well to know that there's someplace we can send them because once they are a victim of crime, they can do a U visa. Sometimes they can do a T visa or self petition if they're married to a U.S. citizen. So that's really, really helpful.
1: The social worker is kind of like the equivalent of uh, a court navigator really helping you, not just a victim advocate, but really somebody who can help you just navigate the process. It seems critical to me for here.
0: It really is. And especially then, like, on top of that, when there's criminal charges and our client is the victim witness in a criminal case, that can be really, really traumatic and difficult, and we try and connect the survivor with someone who can attend the criminal hearings with her, just keep track of what's going on in those cases. It's really overwhelming often.
2: Yeah, I think uh, just kind of going off what Susan said, honestly, sometimes it's just letting them know what is available. People do not know even where to start looking for help. And, um, you know, they don't even, sometimes they don't even know that land of Lincoln or legal aid just in general even exists. So it's important to do, because there are gaps in services and it's important to try to do outreach, community outreach. It's important to have a good relationship with your judges and your courthouses so that they know to, to give people pamphlets, informational packets on us and what we do and who we are for sure. In Illinois, we have a pretty robust Illinois Supreme Court state approved forms that you can access. But again, if you don't know where to look, right, Um, and they're pretty good for pro se individuals, they explain kind of what the process is, what you need to do, they have different like things for protective orders and things like that. And we also have Illinois Legal Aid online, which is extremely helpful and can connect you to legal services as well, if you go through their website. But also, it's just a lot of helpful information. And it comes with sometimes pre-forms, like an explanation of what your legal problem is and what you need to do and then hey here's some some approved state forms that you can use right so while there are gaps um you know certainly making those connections just letting people know that there are services available to them go to your IDHS office right And that's where you can get benefits. You know, are you on Snap? Just asking a couple of those questions, even if you're not going to represent someone for for full representation, right, and just give advice, just even giving that so that they have the tools that they can then be successful with helps tremendously, I, I think.
0: Yeah. I
1: had a question about trends for you, kind of what you're seeing. I was going to ask you about national trends, but it strikes me that this is, like all politics is local, you know, there's this is a really local issue that has to be dealt with because, as you mentioned, ordinances are are very localized. It's not like you can just go to, you know, a domestic violence resource center nationally and find out what to do, maybe some general information, but really the tactical things that you need to actually take care of are all seem very local. So I'm wondering if you're seeing that as part of your organizational outreach, trying to you know get the what you're doing to get the word out and to make these connections with the populations.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have in 2015, PLA, along with some other community actors in the court, started a help center at Family Court Um, And it is specifically for custody, but we started it without any grant funds. It was all volunteer based. And we did it because we felt the court does have an intake unit that will see people and talk to people, but they, they sometimes don't tell people the right thing to file. People are often confused. They don't know what's going on with their case. And it's not like a clerk's job to tell somebody, you know, explain to them what to do. So we started the Help Center back in 2015, and it's really now like an established resource for the community. And when we were able to fund that through a different grant, we have a paralegal who's there every day, and we have volunteer attorneys that go sometimes from our office, sometimes from the private bar. And we're also able to place a paralegal in our domestic violence filing unit And although the court has a lot of rules about when that person can speak to people, we now have a person in the court who can see survivors that very same day that they're filing, explain to them, this is how service will go. This is what your order means. You do or do not have custody of your kids. You do or do not have eviction in your temporary order. What's gonna happen at your hearing? How do you gather your evidence? How do you get your police report? Will your police report be admitted into evidence if you don't have the officer there? All of those things. And it's so much information. So we're trying to get as much of that information on our website and on the court's website. And we just finished this big booklet about custody for domestic violence survivors. So that will be really helpful. And we just try and get as much information out there. And the great thing about having the paralegal at the help center and in the domestic violence unit is they can do intakes for legal aid right there. So our paralegal can talk to somebody, see what's going on. If it seems like it's a high lethality situation or something really urgent, we can do an intake right then and there and try and connect the person to legal services more immediately. That's impressive. That surely saves a lot of steps and just
1: helps get people engaged right away instead of, hey, do this tomorrow. Let's get you started on the process while there's interest and motivation. It's been really helpful.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's really important not to wait or make people that are survivors wait to file because it may be that they are coming to court when the other side's you know when the adverse party or the abuser is at work, right? Um, is away on a. I think one a recent one was like golfing, and so to get those times away where they're not being tracked um, and not being monitored is super important. I do think there it has been a trend. I don't think domestic violence has spiked. I think it's always been there, but there I have seen specifically a trend in my counties about just it's just increased litigation. People show up. People are arguing. People are abusers are are, are way more involved than they used to be even like four years ago. I think that some of that is a result of being interconnected through social media, right? Where you have like-minded individuals who are maybe fueling that fire. But for sure, the self-help center is is amazing. We have something similar in the counties that we have, you know, domestic violence advocates that are there. We have a paralegal as well in the court in one of our courthouses where there's the most need to help people fill out intakes um, and explain that process. And law libraries in general, I think the courts have seen that this is an issue and they have devoted specific resources and time to make sure that people have the ability when they come to the courthouse to sit down in front of a computer and have a clerk assist them. Hey, this is what you're looking at. I can't give you legal advice, but I can give you the forms, right, that you'll likely need to fill out. So I think everybody's recognized that this is a problem. um, And we're trying to, in the best way that we can right now, is try to address that for sure.
0: Yeah. Not everything is rosy and green. Like, we still have a (laughs) lot of problems in Philadelphia in particular, but across the Commonwealth, and one of the things that's been going on is there's so many people coming to file and the court doesn't have the resources to handle all the cases that sometimes the filing unit will close like 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. And it's supposed to be open till four, right? So, you know, you can have a survivor who goes down to court to file and they're told, sorry, we're full for the day. We, you know, it's too late and it's like 11 o'clock. And then They have maybe taken off work, gotten childcare, like snuck out of the house to get down there and they're out of luck and they can't file and they would have to come back the next day. So we're really trying to work with the court to work on those issues. And it really seems like it is a funding issue that the court really needs more judges, more staff, we're working towards trying to train the staff to be trauma-informed and be a little more sympathetic to litigants who are coming in who might be you know, confused or because of the trauma that they're suffering, people are more aware of being trauma-informed and the impact of trauma. But a lot of times survivors don't present the way that someone thinks that they should be presenting. And so they're sometimes just like blown off or not believed or told that they can't file because there's no physical abuse, which isn't true, like things like that. So having the person in the court is really essential to kind of be the ears and eyes of what's going on and sort of address these more systemic issues. So when the when the courts are closing off the ability to
1: file, is a paralegal still there then to help with intake? Presumably, emergencies could still be dealt with.
0: Yeah, that's that's the idea. But they they would have like they're not going to be able to file their petition at court that day. They would have mm-hmm. to like do it themselves, and it's a lot harder to file that kind of petition pro se on your own than it is like a custody petition. One of the things you talked about
1: was, uh, you know, security getting away, being able to even file or talk to somebody. And I understand in in Philadelphia, there's a program that you have with medical legal partnerships. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? That seems really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, so um, quite a few years ago, PLA started a medical legal community partnership where we place legal advocates inside health centers through across the city. But the idea is a nurse or a doctor or any medical provider that's speaking with someone when they find out that they're a survivor of domestic violence or they don't have health insurance or maybe they need food stamps, um, they can connect them to a legal services provider who can talk about their legal issues right then and there. And for domestic violence, obviously it's really crucial and super helpful for survivors if they're brought there with their abuser. It's one place that they can be in a confidential setting and talk to someone. We've seen it happen time and time again, where you know it might be the first person that a survivor is disclosing any kind of family abuse to is the doctor or the nurse practitioner or the person who's taking their blood pressure <laughs> at a health center which is really incredible and great for clients who don't know where to go. And some survivors don't even know what a protection order is, or that's even a thing that's available to them.
1: Emily, are you seeing anything similar with opportunities outside of court, especially or offices for uh, survivors to, to get direct service?
2: Of course. So we have MLPs as well, medical legal partnerships across our offices um, and that give us direct referrals for all kinds of things. But additionally, we have, you know, a really good connection with what we call our community partners. So that can be advocates, that can be people advocates at the state's attorney's office, even state's attorneys in general. So we do have a lot of different partnerships with our community organizations and we have referral forms that we give to each of these individuals and of these partners and they can Fill that out when they have their client sitting with them right in the office and fax it over, email it over to us. But I, I did want to address uh, one thing that Susan said earlier. It's about um, education, um, just, just how how survivors present sometimes. Um, I think that's that's sometimes a really big issue is 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 educating people, right? The police, educating the judicial, the the judiciary in general. Um, And so we recently did um, a—and sometimes the only way to do that is maybe in an expert witness. And so I was recently a part of an expert witness training in Illinois and Chicago and Springfield, um, where we helped with—we worked with sane nurses. um, We worked with um, domestic violence advocates um, to help— then feel more comfortable about being potentially qualified and as an expert witness in these orders of protection um, and family cases. To be honest, so that they can say, "Hey, no, not everybody presents the way, same way." The flat affect sometimes when they're telling you they're, this horrific event is is sometimes a brain's way of coping. Um, is their way of coping with what happened and dealing with the trauma. Um, and so, so, so I did want to um, kind of make a t- tangential skew with that Susan so I appreciate
1: you bringing that up something that's come up uh, repeatedly in this conversation is funding i saw that the department of justice just did a, a big grant 59 million to support survivors of domestic and dating violence and sexual assault survivors. And it just made me, it seems like, you know, it's it's directed in some really interesting ways, a lot of navigation, a lot of education and information. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where funding is going and where you think it's needed and whether, you know, grants like this are are a drop in the bucket or you feel like they'll really help.
2: A hundred percent, right? Um. Uh, More money is not going to fix the issue of domestic violence, and nobody is ever even saying that. But it does help to provide these programs, right? So I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but even technology with the courthouses. We have courthouses in some areas that don't have enough court reporters or don't have recording technology. Um, And so that makes an issue on appeal for orders of protection cases, for family cases, for whatever, right? And so just having those grants available, drug testing, right? Um, What do you do if both parties are, are indigent? And they can't afford to pay for a five-panel hair follicle test, drug test, right? So it's it's getting funding that can show, hey, this is this is an abusive person. This is why they shouldn't be around the kids. They've got this a positive indication for methamphetamines or whatever in their five-panel. Just having those things available is always helpful. So in our office specifically, and I think Susan touched on that, she's got some, a social worker at her office. But we were able to get an additional grant through um, – the VOCA. And with that grant, we were able to hire and have caseworkers in on our family cases as well, which was extremely helpful. Again, because they help people get that financial independence that they need. They help people find housing. They help people like go to local churches or food pantries and get extra services. So more money does certainly help, right? Uh, It's not gonna eliminate the problem, but I think it goes through technology with the court, through remote appearances, things like that, especially in our counties, which are extremely rural, right? So for us, for me, I'd I'd have to drive, you know, sometimes I think the farthest I've driven recently is two and a half hours to a courthouse, right? To have an in-person hearing. And having that remote appearance would help me represent more people because I'm not Mm -hmm. spending five hours you know, round trip for one order protection. So it's super helpful, but those types of grants help. They really do.
0: Yeah. These grants, the LAV grants and the grants through the um, Office of Violence Against Women are critical. They're crucial. We have gotten some of them over the years and they usually, they go in three year cycles. And when we don't have them, we sometimes lose staff. We're unable to replace those staff when the funding goes away. They often do have specific requirements or populations that they're seeking to assist with. And I I do know that there's a housing one, which is great, which is sorely needed throughout the country. And then the VOCA funding too, it wasn't that long ago, it was pre-COVID, A huge amount of Victims of Crime Act money was released for legal aid. And everyone around us got these VOCA grants. And that's how we got the social worker. We had several different VOCA grants. And then the money shrunk again. And so now we're like scrambling to keep the same level of service. We definitely need more funds, not only for federal grants, but for state grants, too. Like I said, the court needs better funding. We need more interpreters in the court. But having civil legal aid lawyers with survivors is so critical. Like there haven't been that many studies about it, but the studies that have been done have shown that that is the most crucial thing in a survivor staying out of an abusive relationship. Is it like maintaining stability, obtaining and maintaining stability financially, getting custody of their children and getting protection orders and having a civil legal aid attorney for that is critical.
2: And I do want to kind of pay back off what you were saying, Susan, when we go through these influxes and, and kind of defluxes? Uh, Yeah, we're going to go with that. Um, In funding, it does, right? It it means that sometimes we have to lay off staff. And I, I couldn't tell you the amount of people that, you know, I've helped or even given advice to, and they're like, thank you so much. I would have never known all of this information. And so that funding is crucial. It's important to also point out that dealing with survivors of domestic violence can lead to burnout right and and can lead to secondary trauma and so it's it's really difficult to retain staff as well when you have them constantly exposed to these really horrifying stories right and 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 sometimes you just feel helpless to help this person so so definitely training on secondary trauma helping people through that is also
0: extremely important as well yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because the self-care for those of us working with survivors is really important, as you said. It's Sometimes it's difficult to keep paralegals. We get these wonderful young college grads and they're super excited to do this work and they're great at it. And after a year or two of being on our hotline and hearing story after story after story with like, seems like it's never ending and it's not, it's really hard to keep up and it's it's hard not to get really discouraged and burnt out. So we really try and provide as much emotional support as we can. We did just have someone come in and do like a self-care workshop for everyone, things like that. We're getting close to time for us today, but I have a couple of questions.
1: One is, you know, especially given the term limited grant funding you rely on, are you seeing some tech advances that help you as you know, a grant's coming to an end that maybe you can shift some resources to at least a tech assisted solution?
0: (laughs) Um, We have not advanced with technology as much as I would like us to. Like I'm, I'm waiting for someone to develop some kind of app that is going to like kind of connect DV survivors to like all the resources or something. And maybe that's something we can think about in the future. We're in our court, just still trying to get electronic filing, which we don't have, which is insane. And in Philly, family court is the only court that doesn't have electronic filing. So it's wild and it's crazy. And we keep hearing about it but it's not happened yet. Supposedly it's in the works. I know other states have civil Gideon commissions or, you know, access to justice statewide commissions that were set up by like the state Supreme Court. Pennsylvania hasn't done that. We'd really love to see that as well and try and make better strides in guaranteeing representation for survivors.
2: Yeah, that is absolutely wild with the e-filing. I think Illinois did a Supreme Court rule like in 2018, everything had to be e-filed. And you can ask for like a special dispensation for like to not e-file, but you have to fill out paperwork for it. That is.
0: So during COVID, it was quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Oh, I bet. We were filing via email. We would send emails with attachments. It was crazy.
2: That's nuts. No,
0: just to kind of go
2: off of that, I think I kind of already touched on the technology a little bit, just remote appearances. You know, having the ability to just show up for a CMC, an initial case management conference where you're just really saying hi and, like, this is where we're at. This is where we're going. Let's go to mediation or whatever, you know, in a family case. I don't need a drive two and a half hours for that right <laughs> so just being able to appear in court remotely at some of these more rural counties is just almost invaluable and helpful for even private attorneys right and additionally the Illinois Supreme Court rule 45 specifically indicates that that you you do have to allow remote appearances when asked across the board and not necessarily for emergency orders of protection or protective orders, restraining orders, but those would include those plenary orders of protection restraining orders as well. So you don't necessarily, a, a survivor doesn't have to be in the same room uh, necessarily as their abuser and feel unsafe, you know, even in a public setting like that. So that that is nice that we have that. But again, getting access to that technology can sometimes be tough. So certainly there's no detriment to having more technology available to communicate to you and have her client communicate with you and also with the court it's no detriment.
0: Yeah. The other thing I'll just say about technology is abusers are very technologically savvy and we have seen an increase in cyber abuse, stalking, you know, even just the trackers. Yeah. That yep. you know putting a tracking device in the diaper bag. After an exchange or something like that, all that kind of stuff has really increased over the past few years.
2: Kids phone. Right.
0: Wow. Well, I, I kind of
1: want to dive into that, but I, that's almost a whole nother conversation. That could be a um, whole
0: nother podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> seriously. But I did want to ask if you, um, outside of e-filing, Susan, what's on your wish list? What would you like to see see happen that you think would really move the needle? In the space, especially in Philadelphia?
0: Yeah, all the funding, funding for legal aid lawyers, funding for the court, all that stuff. But I really think, like, maybe a change in how survivors are viewed. And, you know, start by believing um, is something that advocates always say start by believing. Just start by believing uh, someone who's coming to you saying, my child's being sexually abused or I'm being abused. The process that survivors have to go through both in the civil court and the criminal justice system is so incredibly difficult. And I would like to just see somehow that become a little bit more survivor friendly and or some way to reconfigure how we administer justice for survivors of domestic violence, because the way that the criminal justice system is doing it now is not helpful. And, you know, the intersection between the civil and the criminal, I think, could be a lot more streamlined or make it a little bit easier for survivors to do both.
1: Okay. Emily?
2: We have... A lot of laws and statutes in place that are supposed to, and the intent is to help make this process easier for survivors of domestic violence, but implementing it is the issue. We, For instance, in Illinois, we have a criminal order of protection that a state's attorneys can file, and you don't have to get your survivor to testify again. Just the fact that there are criminal charges isn't enough to meet the preponderance of the evidence standard to file that criminal OP. It's just not being done across the state. And it's it's a lack of education. It's coordination with, with the clerk's office, with the sheriff's department, with the state's attorneys, with the criminal judges, right? So it's just, it's, I would like to see, obviously more money for legal aid attorneys, right? Like, you know, of create 12, 12 more positions right give me you know all that right so but I would also I think I think even at a more basic level it's just just cross education across all of the the areas that affect these survivors lives right police state's attorney the court system civil legal aid the advocates just make sure that everybody knows about the process right so we can streamline it judge education right these are things that I think are are easy to do and maybe wouldn't cost as much but for some reason we're having we're hitting a wall. So that that's kind of what I would like to see hopefully in the near future.
1: Well, thank you so much. I feel like I've I've learned a lot more especially about, you know, how localized some of these issues can be and a lot of things on the wish list that I think a lot of people who are listening to this would agree with. Thank you, Emily and Susan, and thank you, listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Talk Justice. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to rate us and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts can be found. Until next time. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.